0: Hello, and welcome to Myth Mythmakers Myth Makers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author, but also director of the Centre. And I'm joined today by a friend of uh, our endeavors here, Jacob Renecker. Uh, so Jacob, tell us where you're speaking to us from.
1: I'm coming to you now from Seattle, uh, Seattle, Washington uh the United States, and uh, just moved here, relocated from Los Angeles area. So, a little change of scenery, It's from what I can tell, uh, so far it's a little bit closer to, uh, to Tolkien's uh, environs than uh, kind of the more desert-like at times, uh, and quite congested Los Angeles
0: area. So you basically moved from Harad, and you're now somewhere <laughs> a bit more like Bree, or The Shire, um, <laughs> right. or even a bit further north. Um, so Jacob, you've also shifted role a bit. You were telling me that mm-hmm. you're now working in um fantasy in a different way.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So um from you know an academic kind of examination of, of fantasy, uh s- still continuing that on the side, but now in my primary uh role is uh helping to develop uh and produce fantasy uh games, board games, um, uh, etc. So
0: That's very exciting. Fantastic job. Um, Both of us are keen Tolkien fans and readers uh, with a little bit of expertise. And the subject of today's podcast is the Silmarillion. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. The most important of which is that we're about to start a readathon where we invite all of you out there who... um, have read it before and want to talk about it with others or would like to try it for a first time to take on a chapter and share your thoughts on that chapter with everybody who's following the journey we did a successful readathon on the lord of the rings in the spring put this out to public vote i think the choices were the hobbit the silmarillion or one of the narnia books and the Silmarillion pipped the hobbit at the post and I'm actually very proud of the choice because it means we're really kind of going to tackle the harder stuff so if you have thought of reading the Silmarillion or tried it and failed hopefully um, the conversation that Jacob and I will be having will ease you into reading it again so first of all here's an easy ball Jacob what is the Silmarillion you know what's it all about if you've right. just put down Lord of the Rings, what happens when you pick up the Silmarillion?
1: <laughs> there's, yeah, it, it depends if you if you've just finished Lord of the Rings and you pick up the Silmarillion, expecting it to be a lot more of the same. it's it's really it's 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 quite different. um there's there's similarities. There's a lot of intersection there. Um, but I guess, yeah, the place to probably start and b- before you cracking open the Silmarillion, if you haven't before. Um one of the most important things to understand is kind of contextually what what the Silmarillion is, and that is a series of stories, um, as not a series of stories. it's a collection really, of stories uh, that kind of flesh out Tolkien's secondary world, um what you might hear referred to as the legendarium or you know middle earth sometimes is, uh, but that's you know, te- technically doesn't quite cover everything that's in the Silmarillion um because there's a lot more. Uh, outside of that, but essentially if, you, if, if you're just coming from Lord of the Rings, it, this is essentially you know all the, the stories uh, from which the Lord of the Rings emerged. Um, and they weren't created in kind of a chronological, systematic way. This was really kind of an organic kind of springing forth of ideas that Tolkien had started in the, you know, starting in about the 1910s or so, where he starts kind of putting these down to you know, pen to paper, until his death in 1973 he's continuing to kind of i i, I like to think of the silmarillion his, his work that becomes kind of codified uh in the silmarillion as kind of a garden right where he has all these different ideas and he's pruning and he's going back and sometimes he's pulling them out and putting in something new that's kind of close to it but it's just kind of ever evolving he was never completely finished with it he was tinkering <laughs> up till the very end um and so he have all of these different stories. Some of them are well developed. Um, other others are just kind of simple sketches. Um, some are kind of philosophical essays on different ideas within there. Um, but uh, what what happened was how we have the book uh, as it is right now is um, it, it was something that Tolkien tried publishing earlier before Lord of the Rings, right? So this is things that he was working on. Um, after after the Hobbit was published, and you know, to to uh, great um, enthusiasm from the audience, uh, the publisher asked for for more. And so he had all of these stories that he'd been tending to, uh, that were kind of these these background stories of uh, uh, right, of his legendarium, this this world that he's created, a secondary world. And he handed the publishers a few chapters uh, of this, and they said, nope, like that's <laughs> this is not the Hobbit. We want more Hobbit, and so what he ended up doing was kind of striking, kind of, I, the, what I feel is kind of a middle ground between this kind of like larger, more epic history of an entire of, of an entire world universe, uh, in essence, and uh, and the the adventure, fast paced story um, with a lot of dialogue in The Hobbit, and that's where Lord of the Rings it kind of grows grows out of there. Uh, but so, Lord of the Rings gets published, and then you know people are clamoring for more Tolkien. Tolkien passes away, and so his son Christopher is left with you know the publisher saying like, "Hey, we know that he was working on things. Get us <laughs> some more of that. We want more. Everyone wants more." And so Christopher has to file through all of these different stories in different stages of completion put them together create some sort of kind of coherent narrative uh arc from them uh and flesh them out really and so he does so um pouring through the materials himself he has help from a fantasy author guy gabriel k um who helps kind of create some kind of connective narrative threads between these stories that weren't that tolkien hadn't you know sat down and kind of put everything out in one in one go Um, and so It it ends up, and apparently Christopher was under a lot of pressure uh, to get this done quickly. So he puts it together, gets it good enough, and then ships it off. And that's what you have in your hands is this kind of posthumous collection of larger stories in varying degrees of completion that Tolkien had about this, you know, this this world uh, that he that he created.
0: Yes, and it. As people are probably aware, there are other follow-on papers that Christopher Tolkien edited. Um, I think uh, it's fair to say that the Silmarillion feels more polished and more complete than some of them. So right. um, it's it, you know you would be getting a satisfying read if you read the Silmarillion. It's not uh, it, it's not quite as unfinished as the Unfinished Tales, mm. for example. Right um as the as the name suggests so that's the sort of the history of how it came to be written it was definitely really what tolkien loved i think this is what thing to understand is it's the fertile material as you said it's the soil out of which his garden grew so um here i've got actually it's a first edition of the silmarillion um and looking at the append uh, uh, the table of contents here you see that it's b- basically in um well it's in four bits really uh, forgive me for my pronunciation but the first one is the Ainun lindale which is a sort of creation setting up story the vala quenta which um is the story of the Valar, who are the sort of gods and goddesses of this world. And that goes into the Quenta Silmarillion, which is like the, what gives the book its name. So that's all takes part in the first age of Tolkien's world. It's the one which we probably spend most time talking about, I think, today. Then... I'd say the last half, or last third is split into two bits. Um, the next thing is called the Acalabeth. So don't get scared off by these titles. <laughs> basically that's the subtitle of that is the downfall of Numenor. That takes place in the second age, and we'll spend some time talking about that because this is Rings of Power Territory. And then the last section, is called helpfully of the rings of power and the third age and that is partly in the second age and obviously partly in the third age so that's the table of contents but do you want to sketch out in a little bit more detail um let's start with the the form of creation that we read about what's going on there and um, we all know the biblical versions of creation what is tolkien's um sort of myth of creation that he uses.
1: Yeah, and this is fascinating. So my what really hooked me was this beginning, was the very beginning part because of my uh you know academic uh area of expertise in kind of world historical mythologies, um, you know belief traditions, uh, you know, stories, tales that connect with gods, uh, <laughs> monsters, etc. Uh, so the, yeah, so the f- first section, this Einer uh, uh li- literally there means... There you are, that's, the...
0: that's how you say it, Einer Thank you. Einer
1: uh, So literally it means the music of the Einar. Uh So whereas you have, for those uh, readers familiar with the Hebrew Bible or uh, Christian Old Testament, um, Genesis, uh, first chapter, you have kind of God speaking, uh, kind of commanding the world into, into existence in different stages. Um and, uh, you know, d- different worlds, you know, different world uh, areas, cultures have different myths, you know, co- cosmogonic myths, which means like the creation of the cosmos or the ordered world around us. Um, so Tolkien is the, the name of this, you know, Ainulindale, the music of the Einer, his kind of overriding metaphor for creation is music, is song, right? So you have a few different characters, you have um, uh, Iluvatar, who is the this kind of primary large deity? This the, that's kind of could be equated with the kind of Judeo-Christian God um, in in some ways. But again, making equivalence is something that um, we we'll to get to when we get to the Valaquenta, talking about a little bit, and, and Tolkien's pantheon. But it's it's this kind of the the primary main uh, all-powerful, all-knowing um, deity that's behind it and this uh, Iluvatar. And again, like Julia said, the names, don't let the names throw you off. So that's one of the things that might trip readers up is running into these names that are so foreign and you're not used to seeing in Lord of the Rings or Hobbit or anywhere else in the world for that matter. Um, so these worlds, the more that you hear them, it's good to you know reference charts. <laughs> There's plenty online that people have kind of helpfully put together lists of God's lists of genealogies, relationships between these different characters. So absolutely don't feel there's one thing that I would like to get to to new readers is you you're not alone in reading this. There's a number of people who are also reading this and people who have provided helps and different things. So toward the end of our conversation I think we'll go through some of the resources that would be helpful. But this is just you know kind of try to whet your appetite, give you a kind of 30,000 foot view of what we're looking at. So, the, so again, I, I know Lindaleh, all-powerful God, um, then commands, you know, b- brings forth these kind of minor deities, uh, beings of, of power uh, who are themselves, he brings it, this, this all-powerful God brings in to create with him. And they do so through song. Um, and each of them sings something. He, the, the this aluvatar, uh, this god, kind of pr- he he proposes a theme, uh, a musical theme, and the different individual, uh, uh, you know, powerful beings that he created, kind of each riff on that in their own jazz. way. And it's,
0: it's kind of jazz, it's jazz, isn't it? yeah, right, right, right. And then the they, world and is created by like, oh, jazz. <laughs>
1: it really is, yeah, and so. And and that's that's what happens, and they and they're kind of working together, figuring out how to work together and play off of one another, and then uh, one one of these uh, beings of power uh, kind of wants a solo all the time, and so it kind of goes louder and louder, and kind of throws off the others, um, and kind of throws everything into chaos. And then the Ainolindale is a story of you know how the group and this god deal with this commotion uh that's kind of destructive chaotic um uh, participation of one of these in in different rounds and then ultimately what they sing uh the god you know has them create into being so that's kind of like the initial like blueprint outline of everything that's happening and then they go in and the world is created and they kind of recapitulate this song uh into reality is it something
0: so, so there's some wonderful things I just want to pick out of that. So um Melkor, who also gets known later, he's renamed Morgoth by one of the elves. But he's yeah, the Leonor
1: who we'll get to a yeah. lot. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, he is the one who wants to sing his own song. And we were were having a chat before we started talking about how this is described as him ending up sounding just like brass instruments. So for those of you who are wanting to find connections to Lord of the Rings films that they love, please note that Howard Shaw has read The Silmarillion, because um, or intuited it because all of his ways of um, characterising the evil side is to use a lot of brass, which Mm. is entirely uh, appropriate. The other thing about it is how beautifully it reads. Now, it's got a wonderful poetry to it, but it's also got lots of surprises. It's like um, there's waves of creation. uh, Imagine it like waves on the shore sort of again and again, um with Iluvatar saying I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but he says to Melkor and the others, anything you've done here can't be outside my plan, and which is very interesting philosophically about the nature of evil. Uh that I mean, this is really if you're interested in philosophy, this is a fascinating book for you. And then the final thing is actually when they He then shows them the world. He actually says it's not happened yet. Creation hasn't happened. So they decide some of those who've been in part of the scene decide to go in to the world to create the world they've already sung about, fascinating perspective on time, and we could mention Boethius and other people here if we wanted, But the idea of where does e- eternal time fit within a sort of temporal world, anyway, Maybe that's another podcast. Um, So they have to go in and create it and there's a little bit that says how many eons pass before the elves arrive of the waves of creation by the good guys and then Melkor coming and spoiling it, which is a way of Tolkien accounting, I think, for the very long history of our world before there's any, any, any of us here to see it. Um, he does give a sort of scientifically, if you're putting it along science, it kind of fits quite well because he suggests this is a much longer period, but we're only going to concentrate on the bit where there are elves and men and dwarves and so on to see it. So I think it's rather beautifully written. It's a wonderful myth, a wonderful metaphor for creation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I've I've certainly canonized it myself in my own <laughs> yeah. devotional. It's just it is it is you know, like you said, it's poetic, it's beautiful, it's moving. Um, it's inspiring, uh, and I I return to it fairly often. Probably and more the, often than I do the rest of the of the Silmarillion. To be quite frank, again, because of my <laughs> just like love for myth and kind of like creation stories, yeah. But that's one that just I keep I keep finding myself coming back to. And it's not terribly long.
0: No, 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 no. Exactly. I was that, you took the words out of my mouth. I was about to say um, I wouldn't advise sitting down and trying to read the Silmarillion like a story i'd read it in mm. bits and if you just felt oh i feel like it's like mythic today go to the beginning and read that chapter and um, just to sort of you know if you if you're a student out there you might want to compare it to the beginning of paradise lost the, mm. because there are very strong parallels between um the way milton sets up his world in paradise lost and this So you can chuck it into your essay (laughs) or just for a general interest, because, of course, um, Tolkien would have been fully aware of what Milton was up to and his philosophical underpinning. So he's also, as well as the Bible, he's definitely in conversation with um, Milton. And, of course, moving slightly on, he's also in conversation with the Norse pantheon. So let's have a look at the next section, which is, we don't need to spend very long on it's a little description of the Valar and the Maya now if you've wondered who Gandalf is and what a Balrog is and where does Sauron fit in the grand scheme of things this is a wonderful short section for you to read so Jacob do you want to tell us about um you don't need to recap everything in there but just outline this is one of the more summary version you know we move from the myth beautifully told to a more summary set of right. information.
1: Right. So this is just, you know, Tolkien's kind of brief overview of kind of the ruling powers uh of this this world uh that he's created. So Arda and there's different, yeah, so you get into the the universe itself is created and then within the universe there's this world. Um, which is referred to as Arda, which, you know, this is is equivalent to Earth, you know, what what we're on right now. Um, And then, so there's uh, a number of these powers that we mentioned at the beginning, several of them choose to come down and be tied to this world. Um, And that their kind of, you know, fates, their fortunes, uh, sorrows and everything are all tied up in what's happening in this, in this, in this world, in this particular world within the larger universe. Um, And, so this is Tolkien kind of outlining who the you know, what is the pantheon. And so you have uh pairs of gods, often male and female uh pairs, uh and some of which oh, also are
0: brothers, are... also brothers. It's not right. just yes. That, yes. That, you know, that's where I think where it feels quite norse. Um so Melkor is paired like Coeval, I think is the word used with Manwi, who's like the Odin or Zeus, or you know, the sort of top good guy, right? Not that Odin's good, but you know what I mean? He's like the top of that side, yeah. Yeah. So, some, yeah,
1: some of them have like specific or said, you know, they're brothers to this one, some are you know, wedded to other gods, so you have you know, hints of the like Norse Greek um uh pantheons there, and then uh, there's so 14. That are kind of functioning. There were fifteen with Melkor, um, who is the the, chaotic, the tr- our trumpeter, our, our trumpeter soloist um, extraordinaire. He, uh, yeah, is kind of you know falls outside, kind of takes things over, and there's a separation between the two. So, yeah, so this uh, there are different kind of categories, different areas of the world that they're that they kind of have responsibility for. Um, um, so right, so you mentioned Manway, who's kind of the head, you know, chief uh, of this. That has this, uh, seems to have a particularly special relationship with Iluvatar, the primary overarching god. Um, but it's largely this overarching god kind of leaves everything up to these powers, these kind of lower orders of beings, can, compared to uh, the the god Iluvatar. And each of them is responsible for developing some, pers- you know, s- some part of of creation itself so for instance yeah so you have um right so you have uh olay who's uh respond you know kind of the crafts craftsman god um construction who's tied to you know like rock um you have Olmo, who's the god of the water uh, and song as well so there's so th- there's differences one of the things that, that i think is uh a, a mistake to really do it to, is to try to identify directly Hmm. This god of of Tolkien is equivalent to Poseidon. So Ulmo has some similarities with Poseidon or Neptune. Um, but there are differences in that say so Ulmo is really is is a solitary figure, right? So Poseidon, so, well, yeah, so so Ulmo is 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 solitary, doesn't take a wife, and oftentimes functions outside of the rest of the pantheon, kind of does his own thing, has a special relationship with uh elves uh and 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 humans and uh he also is really enamored with song and so you see that uh the song of the einer it said is the the analogy that you used uh, julia about waves about creation kind of happening in waves um tolkien says in this that the, the music of the Ainer kind of is echoed in the music of the sea, right? The sound oh, of the yes. sea.
0: I wrote that down because I thought it was so beautiful. I wrote it down <laughs> today. Let me read it to you. Yeah. And it is said by the Eldar that the water, that in water there lives yet the echo of the music of the Ainur more than in any substance else that is in the earth. And many of the children of Aluvatar hearken still unsated to the voices of the sea and yet know not for what they listen. Which is why uh, there's a link here, of course, if you're looking for your Lord of the Rings links, to why it's so dangerous for um, Legolas to hear the sea, And he doesn't know why, but he's listening to the music of the Mm Aenah. So um, that's, you know, I love those little moments where you think, oh, right, that's what that's all about.
1: Yeah. and that's and that's right the, the reading one of the big things I think uh, a reason for encouraging you know, audience members to pick up the Silmarillion is it enhances if you liked Lord of the Rings, this will only enhance your reread of Lord of the Rings. Mm. So it, it yeah you 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 pick up on different things that are laying behind this that Tolkien doesn't spell out specifically, but this is like we mentioned the soil from which Lord of the Rings is is growing. So everything that you read here, is going to only heighten your appreciation for understanding of what's happening in Lord of the Rings.
0: Absolutely. So, a belief beneath the Valar is like a none of these words quite work, but archangels or something, mm. angelic beings or beings of power um, who are called the Maya. Um, and here we got another wonderful little clue. Do you want to just run through who the Valar are? Um,
1: the Maya. Are. Maya. Yeah. So there, yeah. So, so within these, so the, the Ainur, we said, right. The, the Ainur the music of the Ainur. Ainur are all of these beings of power that God, that, that, that Luvatar creates. Um, and within that group, there's higher and lower, um, beings, the higher ones are the Valar, these that we kind of were saying are function similar in somewhat similar ways to like, you know pantheons you know norse greco-roman pantheons but then the maiar are beings of lesser power sometimes but they they all have specific a lot of them have specific purposes um in different ways and often align themselves with some of the valar Uh, so they might be you know apprentices too so for instance one of the the valar uh that I find most fan- fascinating that you don't really have an equivalent for in other world pantheons is Nienna, who's the goddess of uh, sorrow, of pity, yeah. sorrow, and wisdom. And so talking about these Maiar, so it said that Alorin, uh, who is one of these uh, Maiar, these lesser Not beings.
0: Not the quote I've written down, let's have it. So why okay. <laughs> of the Maya was Alorin. He too dwelt in Lorien. That's Lorien over in the West, not the one in the East. But his ways took him often to the house of Nienna, And of her, he learned pity and patience. So are you going to do the big reveal? Who is a Lorien?
1: <laughs> Lauren we're told later that that's uh, Gandalf, right? So that's a who, who, Maya who chose to put on flesh uh, and, and to have uh, his fate Tied directly and among the people of Middle Earth and the you know elves, humans, dwarves. Uh, yeah. So that so every time, so this again, so like reading this, one that's one of the biggest things that it did for me was opened up this different avenue that then I saw what Gandalf is doing in Lord of the Rings in a completely different way. So he's an apprentice to this goddess of weeping and wisdom. And so she's all and her music is also featured. In the Ainulindale, uh, the creation, where th- there's this kind of overarching sorrow yeah. that kind of weaves its way in creation, but it's it's a sorrow that is generative. It's not kind of a depressing sorrow, but it's a sorrow that is leading ultimately to wisdom and good uh, in in the end. And so that's what Gandalf is doing here, is kind of a <laughs> emissary, if you will, for this goddess Nienna um uh, a disciple of Nienna and that's why when he talks about pity to Frodo right about about Gollum that's coming from his experience and training with this goddess of 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 pity and sorrow and wisdom and it's just because you know sorrow and wisdom kind of come hand in hand from the perspective of that goddess that's kind of her thing is how sorrow can be generative of wisdom and so you'll see so if you read the similar one, if you haven't to this point and if, if you don't get anything else but just you know looking at these gods and following you know this goddess of weeping and she does a number of other things with with the gods um that, that are really interesting and important for the world itself and the lights that's tied to the, you know, the the silmarils and the silmarillion proper that we'll talk about but if you get nothing else like that just following that thread with the uh, the Maiar, this lesser being of power, Olorin, who then takes on flesh and becomes Gandalf, and understanding that, that that alone, I think, can help change uh, and deepen your reading of Lord of the Rings um, all the way through, and Hobbit for that matter.
0: Yeah, and there's two, um, three more, I mean, because we could spend a lot yeah, yeah. talking about a this. Time. It's a thick book. Yeah, so there's three more Maiar to Highlight one is Sauron is also a Maya, so he is, um, that's where a lot of his power comes from. Um, and and so are the Balrogs. So, when Gandalf says, you know, he's really shocked when he finds a Balrog, they're supposed to have all, most of them are supposed to have been destroyed at the end of the first stage. Um, he knows it's he says something about it's not a foe that you can match. You know He knows it's on his level rather than on their level. And then the last one is a Maya called Melian, who is very, very important in the first stage. Um, So let's move now to the Quenta Silmarillion. Now, we obviously can't cover this, but just reading it, you'll find when you look at the table of contents that it breaks down into... Um quite readable sections. It's very well divided up. The first part of it is the story of um how it's basically the story of how the world is lit. <laughs> it might sound strange, but uh it starts with the trees. So if you've been watching the rings of power, um they mention the trees briefly, and if you were confused by that, you can find the explanation in the Silmarillion. And these beautiful trees are destroyed. This is me really rapidly going forward. Really, um, they're destroyed by Melkor, who has with him an enormous spider. What's the name of the spider? forget her name. Ungoliant. There you are, who Shelob is a descendant of. Um, and so she has this voracious appetite, and so she sort of chomps down all the light. And the only light that is left is with is captured in some jewels which were made by an elven smith called fiano fiano where fiano yeah i'm never quite sure about the emphasis there it's over the yeah <laughs> uh fiano um and but he has a sickness of craftsmanship really which is a recurrent problem in this world um he doesn't want to let go and so uh when these jewels are taken um by Morgoth who runs off with them um he decides he won't share the light he wants to go and get them back for himself but he sets it up like a crusade and this divides the elves i've i've skipped over the fact that the elves have been created i'm really sorry but we haven't got time yet. <laughs> <laughs> The elves were created, invited to go and live over in the West. I should have said that. Um, Anyway, so Fiona and his supporters set off to regain the Silmarils, and that's the big, big, big driver of the first age. Now, I think it's helpful just to point out the family trees here. So we've got Fiona, who the parent of um, Fianor is somebody called Finwe and his wife, I think Muriel. Um, they have three sons. Am I getting uh, correct me if I get yeah. this wrong?
1: Right, yeah, yeah. Three sons.
0: Uh no, well, total, had,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, he has a whole range of sons under him who are like his sort of um supporters, like his clan. And then his brothers, this is where it gets interesting because we all meet lots of characters. Um that you recognize is in fact there's a helpful family tree in the back of the um if i can show that if you're watching um his brothers are fingolfin half brothers in fact and finarfin and in the fingolfin family line is Gil-galad, who is the king that you see in Rings of Power um, and ending up at Elrond and Elros, so that's that bit. And then Finarfin, one of his children is Galadriel and her brother, she has a number of brothers, but um, her brother Finrod is the one I think you saw at the beginning of the Rings of Power. So it's quite a tight family group. And just to point out here, Galadriel is very old. She is one of these Noldor, that's the name of that group, and she's one of the elves who goes on the crusade. But importantly, she isn't... Um responsible for the next big thing that happens which perhaps you could take over Jacob and tell us about the the evil amongst the elves.
1: Yeah so right so so Feanor um, is kind of driving this he's the one that created uh, the Silmarils these gems that captured the light of the the tree's of Valinor that were now destroyed. So this is the last of those. So they're supposed to be the most beautiful things ever created um, within, you know, this, this worth within Arda. Um, and uh, so when they're stolen by Melkor, he makes an oath and his children make an oath uh, to, that they will not rest until, you know, they retrieve those. And so they, so, and, and then anyone that they will slay anyone who, you know, holds, you know, touches, holds, keeps, uh, these, um, that doesn't return it directly to them. Um, and so the, you have them, you know, again, this is by, they're, they're willing to do this by any means necessary, uh, even at the cost of the lives of their kindred. So there's, uh, this, this one, you know, tragic event where they go to, to get ships to try to sail across the ocean to go back into the East because again like julia said they're in the west um with the gods to sail east um they don't have ships they come to their kindred who do who do have ships and and, uh, end up asking them to say like hey we need your ships to go do this and they didn't want to part with their ships and so they slaughtered uh uh, their kin took the ships sailed over um and then also burned the ships (laughs) and kind of had insult to injury uh so this so that's kind of where you have this idea of, of of sundering, so this is kind of almost again to make loose connections, a uh, kind of Cain and Abel moment mm. where yeah, you have right. the kindreds separating themselves and kind of the first schisms between the elves as a whole. Whereas before they they were kind of functioning more or less in harmony or kind of doing their own things or finding their own places. Here's where they start to really come into conflict, and and it just continues as long as. The Silmarils are around, which is through the rest of <laughs> this, the, you know, First Age. Uh, um, yeah so that's this is kind of a series of stories about essentially this. This 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 is what drives the conflict within the Quenta Silmarillion is the, the 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 children of Feanor, Feanor, and the children of Feanor, trying to get the Silmarils back among all and which are part of this history of all these elves and then men come into the picture eventually and which brings them into conflict with this kind of oath of Feanor and his children to get the Silmarils back.
0: Yeah, so um, in case you're worried that Galadriel is um, guilty of kinslaying, uh, it's only the sons of Feanor and Feanor himself who were part of the kinslaying um, and they don't even have enough boats and so... He's a nasty bit of work, <laughs> this guy. <laughs> right, right, right. He gets in the boat and sails off, leaving his allies who have also sworn this oath. Um, some people turn back at that point, but the rest of the Noldor, including Galadriel and including um, Gil-Galad's father and all sorts of people, they all carry on. Um, yeah, right, right. They have to go across... The northern, like the ice passage across the north. So you know, yeah. the equivalent of Alaska. You have to go over that bit. Um There's a beautiful uh, thing the the
1: Hel caraxa it's the the, yeah. the land of grinding ice. So these are just, yeah.
0: And many people, many of the elves die at that time. So they obviously arrive in Middle Earth still bound by this oath. Um but not very pleased, obviously horrified by the actions of Fiona and and, um, children. And they're also under a doom, so a a curse. The Valar say that you've chosen that, you can't come back. So one of the, um, just to do a link forward to the Rings of Power series, um, one of the things they've not followed through is that Galadriel as one of the Noldor is under a particular doom that she can't go back to the west. Other elves could. So all that stuff about you've been given a special ticket back, that's not right in terms of the Tolkien story. Um, And in fact her journey isn't completed until she resists the power of the ring later on. It's like uh, one moment where Finally, she can go into the West. Um, So that story arc is beautifully described. You can pick it out of the Silmarillion. So you might want to delete that bit from your memory of the Rings of Power. (laughs) It it doesn't quite work with Galadriel's story. It's a better story that Tolkien's come up with. Um, Okay, so we can't go into every single story here, but what we do get is a collection of quite often pairs Um, so brothers and sisters, there's a lot of tragic stories, brothers and sisters, uh, love story. And, of course, one of the stories that we can't overlook is the marvellous love story of Beryn and Luthien. Jacob, do you want to tell us a little bit about the importance of this story in the sort of Tolkien mythos?
1: Right, so Beryn and Luthien are the story of a human who falls in love with. Uh, and ends up marrying an elf, uh, elf maiden, uh, and this is a, a story. This this is probably the most, I, I think, the closest, perhaps, in kind of tone and pacing to what you see in Lord of the Rings. Uh, so you can read just you you can pick up the story of Baron and Luthien and read it through, and I think it's very readable uh, and engaging, and it's this wild adventure with uh, a hero and heroine. The heroine saves the hero uh, several uh, different times. There's, you know, there's there's battles, uh, a Luthien
0: talking dog? Is a talking dog? Yeah, there's a
1: talking. There's a dog who can only talk three times, uh, and so he has to uses his, uses his, his words carefully. Um, and then they fight uh, Sauron. Um, so you have a confrontation with word just uh, Luthien fights Sauron, and it's anyway. Is it, is I mean, it Sauron
0: or is it Morgoth?
1: Uh, She puts Morgoth, I think she fights Sauron, she puts Morgoth to sleep. So anyway, so there's kind of a, you have kind of a almost reverse Orpheus and Eurydice um, story happening here. Uh, And so, yeah, uh, ultimately, so there's there's something to do with, again, which said Melkor stole the Silmarils, right, and has them in a crown. And so these two, Brave, Angband and the hosts of uh of of morgoth uh to go take one of these back to um luthien's father so that he can have her hand in marriage uh (laughs) so quite a task anyway so this is this story of and there's there's sorrow there's and i I, I i don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't read it yet but there's there's changing of sorrows there's yeah there's there's real there's uh new catastrophes right these moments of unexpected uh joy and surprise in the face of defeat and sorrow um, and ultimately so this kind of becomes a paradigm for the uniting of different peoples right humans elves um of you know the you know, worldly with the kind of like higher or artistic beautiful and this story of elves and men kind of uniting gets recapitulated time and again even unto right so we have uh, in lord of the rings aragorn and arwen uh, their love, we, we see um, Aragorn singing parts of this song, of this story in Lord of the Rings. So if you want that kind of the full uh, story of what happens here and why Aragorn would be singing this and identify so much with Baron and Luthien. So we have that in Lord of the Rings, but then even Tolkien carrying over into his own life, um, this is kind of inspired by his relationship with his wife and so this story is recapitulated. Uh, he's seeing you know, echoes where either we're seeing echoes of Tolkien's life in Lord of the Rings or, and Tolkien sees echoes of Lord of the Ring of, of, of this, you know, in, in the Silmaril and the story, of Baron of Luthien, sees echoes of this in his own life um, going the opposite direction. So much so that when his wife dies, he has a uh, Luthien carved on her, uh, on her headstone. And then after he dies, then Baron is inscribed in, on his tombstone. So he saw himself as, in essence, kind of part of this recapitulating story of uh, of the bringing together of two people, one person who seems to be like an ordinary, ordinary Joe, uh, ordinary guy, then like marrying up, finding some, you know, finding a woman who is clearly beyond him and uh, who enriches his life um in 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 myriad ways and so that story you see kind of popping up in in again in waves kind of coming up over and over uh with the within tolkien's uh, broader uh legendarium
0: yes it's told uh, in well it's not it's told in in quite at quite a length in this um book but also there's a separate volume of even longer version of this Baron and Luthian story, which you can get separately. But this is a good place to start if you want to read that story. So um perhaps then the last place in the first age we should pay attention to is a fabulous section, which I think um I just reread it for doing this podcast and realized how brilliant it is. It's actually one of my favorite bits in the Silmarillion now and that's the voyage of A now, we won't go into all the family backgrounds, but perhaps listeners will want to know that Airendel is the father of your favourite elf lord, Elrond. So he's um, – and he is absolutely key to how the first age ends. So I think if I was looking for a, a place to – someone said, I want to read something in the Silmarillion that – um has has sort of a big battle in it and lots of sort of scope. I think this is a fantastic story because it also includes the sort of mythic element of a voyage to the West and becoming a star and all sorts of wonderful things. Plus his wife is, you know, very active and, you know, it's, it's all great stuff. So um, the voyage of Earendra ends the first age because he successfully crosses the sea Um, with one of the... Has he got one of the uh, Silmarils with him? She brings him a Silmaril. His wife brings him a Silmaril, doesn't she? Yes, I think. That's right. And so they get to the other side where they're not supposed to go, Um, but they appeal to the Valar to come and save Middle-earth from the evil uh, Melkor. And there's a big battle... I'm not going to spoil the... Just read it, because it's fantastic. It's, you know, everybody comes and helps. And this is when the geography changes, because as a result of locking down, literally locking down this um, original bad guy, this power, there's huge sort of geological upheaval. And that's when the old map transforms into the more familiar map of Middle-earth and so that's the end of the first age and that's the, the point where we're going to stop for this podcast and we're going to pick up at the second age and the ancalabeth in our next episode
1: thanks for listening to mythmakers podcast Brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.